Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Hey, uh, <laughs> I had to laugh, man. A good rule of thumb is don't show up to church late when your mom's doing announcements. <laughs> because she will call you out when you're walking through that door. <laughs> that, that just cracked me up, man. Okay, um, before we get started this morning, let's pray. Uh, let's take some time to uh, quiet our hearts before the Lord and ask that Jesus would speak to us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Hungry, Father God, to learn more about what it means to see our lives through your kingdom. Lord, we want to walk out of this place different than when we arrived. And so we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, you would come and fill this place. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear your word, that we may encounter you today. We proudly sing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got some uh, news to share with you this morning. Uh, I recently learned that for the last 40 years of my life, I've been dealing with a disease. I've had it um, since infancy, and it's affected nearly every area of my life. And uh, it is the disease of procrastination. (laughs) Doctors tell me that uh, the disease itself is incurable, but if there is any treatment that I want to pursue to help lessen its effects, I can wait till tomorrow. (laughs) It's true, I am a procrastinator. At the core of my being, I've lived my life by the mantra that why do today what can be done tomorrow, right? Is there anybody else in here who perhaps can relate to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And when I was younger, my procrastination was probably most evident during my high school years. As I can remember on time and time again, occasion after occasion, where I would delay studying for a test or writing my exam paper till the very last moment. And of course, I would justify my procrastination by telling myself and my dear parents who are here this morning that I work best under pressure, right? Of course, my C-plus average would probably tell you otherwise, but that's what I told myself nonetheless. And as I've gotten older, I've taken conscious steps to try and resolve uh, my procrastinating ways. However, if I'm honest, there's still times where I tend to fall back into old patterns and routines in life. And I thought the best example of that was just recently, a few weeks ago, when I waited to cut my lawn for the first time this year. I don't know if anybody else wrestles with that or struggles with that same problem, but I kept telling myself that the lawn's really not that bad, until it was really that bad. I mean, at one point, um, I remember looking out my back window, and I swear I saw like a lion crawling through the jungle of my backyard, getting ready to pounce on a zebra. And so when I finally worked up the gumption to get outside and tackle this project, I realized very quickly that a normally one-hour project 
had turned into a three-hour battle with grass because of my procrastination. And normally when I end up with just like 10 bags or three bags of grass, I ended up with 10 bags by the end of this excursion. And so my procrastination cost me dearly. But it's not just in my normal daily, everyday routines where I feel the impact of my procrastination. It's also in my spiritual life as well as I tend to experience or frequently experience a form of spiritual procrastination in my faith journey. I would say that there are seasons of life where I intentionally put off or delay pursuing growing in my faith through the practice of spiritual disciplines. Maybe that's something like prayer or reading my Bible. Maybe it's sharing my faith publicly with others or engaging in community here at Mosaic Church or perhaps it's even loving my neighbor. But I delay through spiritual procrastination. I tell myself, why do today what I can do tomorrow? And as a result of that, I tell myself that at some indefinite point in the future, I'm finally going to get serious about different areas in my walk with God. It sounds something like this. For example, I'll say, next week I'm going to start getting up early to read my Bible. I'm going to start spending more time in God's Word next week. Or maybe I say to myself, next month I'm going to really focus on trying to give more through my tithes and offerings. Or I say, next year I'm going to get serious about loving my neighbor and being intentional about loving those in my community. And with each promise that I make to myself that just really further enables my spiritual procrastination, it's all based on the belief that I have the time to do so. Sometimes I struggle with spiritual procrastination in my life because I believe in the assurity of my tomorrow. And I'm wondering, is there anybody else here this morning who might be able to relate with that in your own life? Because I think if we're honest with one another, with ourselves this morning, there are a variety of different excuses that perhaps we will use in our faith journey to excuse our spiritual procrastination in our lives. Now, I've been doing this full-time ministry thing for about 10 years now, and I can say with confidence that in those 10 years of ministry, I've experienced at least four very common excuses that people will use whenever we're talking about the issue of spiritual procrastination. For our time here this morning, we're gonna label those four excuses. The young believer, the busy believer, the, um, uh, the uh, messy believer, and the fearful believer. And so I'm gonna explain what each of those means and what those excuses look like quickly, but as I do so, I wanna invite you just to see if perhaps you see yourself in some of these. The young believer will say to themselves, I wanna have fun while I'm young, right? And so that I will get serious about my relationship with God as I become an adult. The busy believer will say to themselves, I'm too busy right now with fill in the blank. Whatever that may be, I'm too busy with this to really focus on my relationship with God at this time. The messy believer will say to themselves, I need to get my life cleaned up first before I come to God. And the fearful believer will oftentimes say to themselves, I need to overcome my fear of what others might think of me 
when I make a public profession of faith in Christ. And the truth is this, is that this morning, regardless of which of those excuses, perhaps maybe you identify for your spiritual procrastination, maybe it's one of those four, maybe it's something else, they're all based and bound together on a common belief. It's the belief of the certainty or the assurance of tomorrow. It's the belief that tomorrow will come for every one of us. The sun will rise and we will wake to see the next day. The young believer, for example, assumes that they're going to make it to adulthood. The busy believer believes that they'll arrive at a point in their life where the demands of their schedule will no longer press it up against their desire to pursue God. The messy believer assumes that there's going to be enough time in their lives to get their things straightened out. And the fearful believer believes that someday they will arrive at a place where they're no longer afraid of what others will think of them. Each one of those excuses is tied to the belief that we have time. And so the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is as Christ followers, do we really have the luxury of time in our faith journey? And more specifically, how do we overcome our spiritual procrastination? But here's the good news this morning, church. You are not alone. If any one of those different excuses resonated in your mind, as it did for me, and I've said up here from the stage this morning, and it does, there were people in Jesus' day who struggled with a similar form of spiritual procrastination as well. In fact, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus shares a parable about a fig tree that serves as a powerful illustration about a deeper spiritual truth regarding the surety of time as relates to our spiritual growth. So I want to invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, or perhaps you have your Bible apps, uh, we'll also have the verses on the screen, to turn with us uh, to Luke chapter 13 and explore together what Jesus teaches on this important spiritual issue. And so as you turn there, let me quickly give you some insight into what's happening in Luke chapter 13. Luke 13 actually falls closely on the heels of the parable of the rich fool that we talked about last week. And for those of you who may not remember, or those of you who perhaps were on vacation last week, uh, Luke 12.1 tells us that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, has reached a near rock star status. That there are literally upwards to 50,000 Jewish people who had descended down upon Christ and his followers. They're literally trampling on one another just for the opportunity to hear the master speak. Had Jesus been alive today, we might say that with the followers he announced, he would have a blue check mark by his name, right? I mean, he was popular in that moment. And so Jesus takes advantage of the assembled masses to begin to teach them more about what it looks like to see the world through the kingdom perspective. And so Jesus begins to instruct the people on a variety of different spiritual topic, topics. He's talking about the dangers of hypocrisy. And then he talks about trusting God for his faithful provision for every need in life. But as Jesus is concluding his sermon in the waning verses of chapter 12, he shifts focus. He begins to talk about the spiritual procrastination that had gripped the hearts of many that were in the crowd that day. 
And so let's pick up the story from there, beginning first in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed in, uh, with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will also perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you again, no. But unless you repent, you too will also perish. And what a cheery bit of scripture this morning we're reading, isn't that? I mean, we've got people that are being murdered by Roman authorities. We've got towers that are falling on people. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus tells the crowd, repent or die. Aren't you glad that you came to church this morning? <laughs> but the truth is, is that this is a shocking text because Jesus's words were meant to be shocking. He's attempting in this moment to wake the audience from their spiritual slumber, as it were. And so Jesus masterfully seizes this moment and utilizes the news of well-known tragedies that had occurred in the Jewish community to draw his audience's attention to their spiritual procrastination. And he does this for a very specific reason. Jesus uses these tragedies because human tragedies, as horrible as they are, in every form that they come in, whether it's the slaughter of the Galileans at the temple in Jerusalem, whether it was the tragic accident of the Tower of Siloam falling on those Jews in Jerusalem, or whether it was what we bore witness to just a little over a week ago, where 19 children were murdered in Uvalde. Human tragedy in all of its horrible forms naturally raises questions within the human psyche about our own mortality, doesn't it? It begins to cause and focus us to think on what our own mortality looks like. And this matters to our discussion this morning because just like many of us here this morning, just like myself included, many of the Jews that were surrounding Jesus that day practiced a form of spiritual procrastination in the rejection of Christ as the Messiah because they believed that they had time. They believed that they had time. How? Why? They believed that they had time because many of the Jews of that day were caught up in a form of religious works-based system that forced its adherents to see themselves as being basically good on the merit of a subjective and superficial perspective. In other words, the Jewish people said to themselves that I am good because I am God's chosen people, because I observe the law of Moses, and therefore I do not have to worry. My future is safeguarded from the prospect of God's judgment. Instead, they might tell you this morning that they believed that the wrath of God was reserved for those pagan individuals and those foreign nations who engaged in gross moral sin. And so the news of this tragedy begins to sweep over the crowd. I mean, just imagine for a moment, people, it's, it's, it, hits, it hits one person and they start whispering, did you hear, did you hear? It starts just spreading through this crowd like wildfire. 
and the news reaches Jesus' ear and his followers, and Jesus turns to the crowd and he asks a question that essentially amounts to this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? He's forcing them to wrestle with the question that most every one of us who's ever experienced the bitterness of tragedy when it strikes our lives to ask the question, if that had been me, would I be ready to stand before God? If I had been in that position, would I be ready to stand before God? Because the truth is, the hard truth is, church, for those Jews that day that were standing and listening to Jesus, and indeed for those of us who are assembled here at Mosaic Church, sooner or later, that will be us. Nobody escapes this life alive. That will be us. And so Jesus is saying and asking this question, he's telling them time is a luxury that you cannot afford to prop up your spiritual procrastination. And he says that for one very simple reason. Sin. Sin. Because the Bible teaches us that um, because of sin, life is so very very fragile. And notice for just a second, go back into uh, Luke 13, 3, Jesus' words here. He says this, but unless you repent, you too all will perish. And Jesus lumps all of humanity into his statement in this moment. Both the self-righteous Jew, as well as the pagan foreigner, as well as those of us who are sitting here this morning in order to tell them that they cannot dismiss the reality of God's judgment based solely on our subjective view of sin. Because the truth is, in the Jewish mind, they reasoned that this horrible fate that had befallen the Galileans was the result of some horrible sin in their lives. Some of us do that as well. When we try to explain tragedies, we see horrible things that happen. We try to think, well, it must have been a bad person that that happened to. They thought that, that because it was an extraordinary tragedy that there must have been extraordinary guilt associated with it. However, Jesus responds immediately. He doesn't, he asks the question and then he doesn't even give them a chance to respond back to it. It's a rhetorical question of sorts. And Jesus just says, no. No, it was not extraordinarily horrible sin. It was ordinarily horrible sin, just like yours, just like mine just like yours. And so Jesus' statement in this moment assumes something that is so important when you understand the Bible. He assumes what the Bible teaches from cover to cover, that sin has consumed the heart of man. And because of that, life is so very, very fragile. We are sinful and so sinful that when we experience different calamities and disasters in the world around us, as heartbreaking as those may be, we should not see it as something unwarranted happening to innocent people. Because the truth this morning, church, is this, is that when we compare ourselves in relation to God, there is no such thing as an innocent person. When we stand in relation to God, there is no such thing as an innocent person or a good person. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. 
And I would suggest to you in this moment that instead, what should truly amaze us in our sin is not that some are taken in calamity, but that we have been spared any amount of time to repent at all. We're all guilty. We're all deserving of death and judgment from God because of our sin. And the incredible truth of our universe is not that the guilty perish, but that we serve a God who loves us so and is so slow to anger that we have the ability to be sitting in this room this morning still drawing breath with the ability to repent before God. And so I think one of the truths, church, that we can cling to this morning, when we're talking about this idea of overcoming spiritual procrastination in our lives, is beginning to understand the reality that life is indeed fragile because of sin. However, just intellectually understanding that principle that there is no guarantee of tomorrow because of our sin is ultimately useless unless we decide to do something with it, right? If somebody receives a cancer diagnosis, that information is useless unless they go and seek treatment to cure the disease. And so Jesus, in this moment, and to that end, says that the resulting action of acknowledging our sinfulness and our fallenness before God is repentance. And he says twice in this uh, short five verses in Luke 13, 1, that unless you repent, you too will also all perish. And so it should make sense for us this morning, that as we're examining Jesus' words, that if we have no guarantee of tomorrow, we should probably understand what Jesus means by the word repent today. <laughs> if we have no guarantee of our tomorrow, we should probably understand what Jesus means by this word. Because a lot of us come from a Western mindset with the idea of repentance. We tend to think that repentance is an act. It's something that I can do to curry favor with God. And so we might say, uh, I'll, I'll repent, and what I'll do is I'll carry around a guilty conscience for the rest of my life about this thing that I did. Or depending on what denominational background you come from, maybe it's sitting in a small wooden box and confessing your sins to a priest. But that is not what Jesus has in view here when he's talking about this idea of repentance. Additionally, we need to understand that true repentance and true faith are inseparable. We can and we should um, uh, look and distinguish between the two of them, but the truth is, is that they are really two sides of the same coin. And what's interesting is that as you look through the pages of Scripture, Scripture talks about salvation, and you'll find in Scripture that's uh, talking about salvation that at times it'll refer to salvation through repentance, at other times it'll say salvation through faith, and at other times, it'll say salvation through both, repentance and faith. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. And so faith is us relying on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Whereas repentance refers to us turning back towards God and turning away from our sin. And as a result, it should be inconceivable inconceivable to us as those who are Christ followers, those who have made a genuine commitment and a faith to Christ, that with one hand, we would reach out for Christ and grab hold of eternal life through Jesus our Lord, and with the other hand, still cling to our sin and spiritual procrastination. 
It's inconceivable. You can't hold one and not the other. You have to either take hold of Jesus and let go of one, or hold the procrastination and let go of Christ. And I love how um, Pastor Stephen Cole put it this way. He said this, that um, the hands that reach out to Christ receive pardon, and to receive pardon must also let go of the sin that needs pardoning. The hands that reach out to Christ to receive pardoning must also let go of the sin that requires the pardoning. Spiritual procrastination, church, has no place in our lives as fully devoted followers of Christ. And so Jesus is instructing his followers in this moment. He's trying to get them to, to wake up to the fact that spiritual procrastination has crept into their lives. And he does this by saying that because of sin, none of us are deserving of being uh, receiving exemption from the judgment of God. If we all got what we truly deserved as a church, as, as individuals, as humanity, because of our sin, there would not be one person, including myself, who would be standing alive on the stage today. We all are deserving of God's judgment, and Jesus says that because of that, because of sin, because sin makes life so fragile, we should take every opportunity that we have to get right with God, because life is short, plan accordingly. Life is short, church, prepare accordingly. And the way that we get right with God is through a genuine repentance, where we confess our sins before him and where we turn from our sin to receive mercy from God. And so the question then becomes, how do I know that my repentance is genuine? How do I know that, that I've actually genuinely repented before the Lord? And I imagine that as Jesus was sharing these words with the crowd that day, there were probably similar questions that were fluttering throughout the crowd, different whispers of people saying, how do I know? How do I know that I've genuinely repented? Because they just got done listening to Jesus drop what amounts to a spiritual bomb obliterating their excuses for being spiritual procrastinators. He's blown it out of the water. They've got no ground left to stand on. And so perhaps Jesus in this moment, beginning to sense some of the nervous anxiety that had settled on the crowd, Luke doesn't say for sure, but perhaps it was that, he decides that in this moment he's going to share with them a parable. And it's a parable about a fig tree that, is used, that he uses to help illustrate the true heart of repentance. And so he begins telling his story beginning in verse 6, and he says this in Luke 13, 6. Then he told a parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look at it for fruits, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I have not found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. And if not, then cut it down. And so Jesus, in telling this parable, employs a masterful storytelling technique. He uses a simple analogy of a fig tree that would have been well understood in that agrarian culture. However, the story itself is a cliffhanger. Jesus never actually reveals what happens to the fig tree. Does it bear fruit? 
does it get cut down? We don't know. Jesus doesn't say. But Jesus concludes his parable in such a way that is meant to force the audience to provide their own conclusion to the story. My wife and I are a bit of movie buffs, and so we enjoy going to the movies. And this is something that we see all the time when we go to the movies. Movies will use this same tactic in their storytelling, right? There'll be an ambiguous ending to a movie that will cause audiences to debate and dissect around the water cooler for an eternity about what happened to that main character. How did the story actually end in that moment? And none of which uh, anybody's guesses on Reddit or around the water cooler are necessarily right or wrong. I mean, for example, one of my favorite all-time movies is Inception. And if you've seen the movie, you know the example I'm going to share here in just a second, right? The movie concludes with the main protagonist being reunited with his children in his father's home, seemingly having escaped limbo, this kind of dream state that the whole movie is based on. And the final scene shows the protagonist taking what they call a totem, for him it was a top, a little top, that he spins on a table. And it's meant to reflect that if that top continues to spin, that he is trapped in this dream state. But the top falls over, he's in reality. And so the final scene is a close-up of the spinning top, and it wobbles ever so slightly, and then the screen cuts to black. The credits roll. I hate it. I hate it. I don't want to think when I go to the movies. I want to see stuff blow up. But instead, I have to think about that. And that's exactly the point. That's why movies like Inception do that, so that audiences continue to talk about the story long after they've left the theater. And that is what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's using a story that is intended to engage the audience long after he is left. However, there's an important distinction that we need to make here, because there's a big difference between Inception and Jesus' parable, okay? Inception, fictitious. Jesus' parable, real life, eternity, okay? Jesus is talking in the form of parables. As we said last week, par uh, parable is just a simple tale that Jesus uses about a common subject to relate a more profound spiritual or moral truth. And so the question that we would ask when we walk out of a movie is, what happened to the character, how did it end, whatever. And what we might be tempted to ask in this moment is, what happened to the tree? But that's not the question. This is spiritual. It relates to our hearts and minds, our lives today. And so the question is, what does this mean to me? What is it that Jesus is saying through the telling of this parable? And when we consider Jesus' words previously, as he's talking about this importance of being a person of repentance, the meaning of the parable becomes clear. That true repentance, genuine repentance, will bear fruit in our lives. And so one of the ways, church, that I think practically this morning, that we can begin to wrestle with this and overcome our spiritual procrastination is by examining our lives and asking, when God looks at my life, does he see fruit or does God see barrenness? When God looks at my life, when he examines the results of my life, does he find fruit or does he find barrenness? And this is not a principle that is absent from other places in the Bible. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, the Apostle Paul shares a similar exhortation 
when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he said this, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless you fail the test? In other words, test your faith to see if repentance, true repentance, is bearing fruit in your life. And so the question then is this, is what is true repentance? What is the fruit of true repentance? And I would share with you this. I believe that the fruit we see from surrendering our lives to Christ, and this is where, as a church, we've done such a poor job in America. We tell people, pray a prayer, go to church, and you're done. But true repentance yields a fruit that allows us to continue to grow in holiness, that allows us to continue to grow in spiritual maturity, that begins at the point where we come to faith in Christ, to the very point where we breathe our last breath on this earth and stand in eternity before the Lord. Because just as that owner of that garden, that plot, walked in and said, I want to see fruit, I want to see figs on that fig tree, so too does God desire to look at our lives and find the good fruit of true repentance and not the barrenness that comes from spiritual procrastination. Because know this, church, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. We're meant to bear fruit. It's one of the descriptions that God uses for us. And thus the fruitfulness that they're referring to here is a Christ-likeness that is representative in both the way we think and the way we act, in our character and in our conduct. And so I think one of the ways that we can start to kind of look or examine our lives is based on the fruit of the Spirit, which is found in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. It's a succinct list that we can begin to look at and say, are these things that are representative in my life as somebody who says, I follow Jesus? In Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, but, if the, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, and self-control. And I think when we examine our lives and we begin to see that fruit in our lives, it's a telltale sign that Christ resides in us and our repentance is genuine. Now, hear me for a second because I know the objection that's going in your minds. I still mess up. Following Christ does not mean that we live a sinless life. It does not mean that we do not make mistakes, and it does not mean that there are not temporary seasons in our life where we experience spiritual procrastination. That's not what I'm saying this morning. But what it does mean is that we don't stay there. We do not stop, we do not stay there, we continue to progress in holiness, we continue to grow in our relationship with Christ, we continue to pursue being more and more like Christ in everything that we do through the power of repentance and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So my challenge, church, is I had to wrestle with this this week. I had to deal with for an entire week. You got just a couple hours you've had to deal with this. I've had a whole week of studying having to measure my life and examine my life. My challenge to you is this, is I've had to examine my own life, is that may we take seriously this week the need to examine our lives for the fruit of true repentance because life is fragile. In church, we need to take every opportunity to make ourselves right with God through repentance. Do not waste this time. Life, life is short, church. Please prepare accordingly. Can we pray with me?
Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.